Welcome, listeners, to a new episode of Criminal Mind, a brand new true crime podcast that delves into shocking cases that all tie into mental health. I'm Raviv, and today's episode is about Misty Copsy. This case had limited resources to pull from, so I wanted to make sure that I put together as accurate a timeline as humanly possible for this episode. The story of Misty Copsy's disappearance is chilling, so as always, please listen with caution. Cases surrounding disappearances are always interesting to research, though, because you honestly never know what you're going to read next, especially if it's a case you're reading about for the first time. I wasn't familiar with the story of Misty Copsey's disappearance until I began researching for this episode. From what I remember, I selected this story a while ago. I found out about Misty via a Reddit thread. There's a lot of true crime chatter there, and many others who are interested in the subject and trying to figure out what happened to so many missing persons. It's definitely a strong community. So, with that said, we're going to strap in and walk through the story of Misty Copsey together. Welcome to Criminal Mind. 14-year-old Misty Copsey disappeared from the Poyalup Fair in the state of Washington on September 17, 1992. She attended the fair with a friend, Trina Bavard, and she intended to catch a bus home at 8.45, but never did. She was to head home to her mom's, which was located in the town of Spanaway, Washington. I've always actually felt quite weird about fairs. I feel like they just give such ample opportunity for criminals to prey on children. Kids, primarily teenagers, often go to the fair with their friends. At least, this is what I've always noticed at the fair. You play games, eat fair snacks, ride dizzying rides. The local fairs are exciting. Teens get the chance to just run around carefree with their friends and usually without adult accompaniment. But when you think about it, there's usually adults everywhere. There are people everywhere at local fairs. With so much to check out, so many things to do and look at, people are drawn in every direction. So the first thing that I immediately thought of when researching this case was, how did this girl disappear amidst potentially a huge crowd of people? After missing the Pierce Transit bus, Misty phoned her mom, Diana Smith, to let her know that she was going to get a ride back home with her older friend, 18-year-old Reuben Schmidt. Presumably, like any mother, Misty's mom did not feel comfortable with this idea. She told Misty to find a ride with someone else, and I don't know if this was just a weird, instinctual feeling she had or what, but I agree that getting a ride home with an 18-year-old boy is discomforting. After the call with her mother, Misty opted to walk home. The walk back was eight miles, quite a long trek for a 14-year-old girl, and especially in the dark of the night. She began the walk, and a witness later stated that he saw her walking at around 10 p.m., but Misty never came home, and she has not been seen since. I can only imagine what kind of distress her mother was in. Reuben Schmidt ended up not giving Misty that ride home, but after choosing to walk, she just never showed up again. Her mom immediately began phoning relatives, hoping for any information about where Misty could be, and then proceeded to report her daughter missing. My first thought went to Reuben Schmidt. He said he didn't give her a ride back when questioned, but his roommate at the time said that they had had a brief conversation on the phone that night, and then Schmidt left, presumably to pick up Misty, but didn't have enough gasoline to get her. Definitely suspicious and odd timing, but he has continued to deny that he had anything to do with Misty's disappearance. It isn't surprising that police initially assumed that Misty ran away from home. 
I feel like, unless there's concrete evidence otherwise, police always jump to this conclusion. According to the Charlie Project, there were two classmates who claimed to have either had contact with her after she went missing or saw her. The first classmate claimed that Misty called her after her disappearance. I couldn't find any context to this supposed phone call, but I honestly don't think that there is much merit to this claim. The second classmate said that they saw her on September 21st, four days after she went missing. But again, this claim didn't really go anywhere, and police closed the case. Closed it. They told the media falsely that Misty was found. Honestly, what the fuck? Where did they even pull this information from? If they had any evidence that Misty was actually found, they definitely didn't tell the public. But it was false from the get-go. Misty was never found and is still very much missing. When police finally spoke to Trina, there were immediate holes in the story. She told police that she didn't walk home. Instead, she grabbed a ride with her boyfriend at the time, Michael J. Reiner, who was 23 years old. I don't know where these young girls were getting these adult-aged boyfriends and friends, but it makes my stomach churn. I just don't get a good feeling when I read things like this. Older men often take advantage of young, vulnerable, naive girls. You have two girls looking for a ride home from the fair, and how easy does it become for a cool, older guy to get them into his car? I'm not saying that either Michael J. Reiner or Ruben Schmidt are the end-all for this case, but it just hits a weird chord. What's even more unsettling about Trina's boyfriend is that when he was just 14 years old, he was accused of abducting and raping an 11-year-old girl, threatening her with a knife, according to the Charlie Project. Like, what? And this girl Trina was still choosing to date him? I can't even believe that the police didn't zero in on this guy. I mean, we really don't know if they did or not, but everything I've read makes me believe that they didn't even glance his way. What's even more interesting here is that Misty denied the ride home from Michael. She felt uncomfortable and didn't trust him. So she did end up walking and Trina took the ride with her boyfriend. Police did question both young men, but it still just surprises me that this wasn't an urgent thing. They had two potential suspects, both questionable, one with criminal accusations, both older than Misty. There just seems to be an overall lack of urgency in this case. They talked to Michael J. Reiner, did a polygraph test on him, and he passed, which, in my opinion, means nothing. Polygraph tests can't really tell if you're lying or not, so this is a bullshit way to clear him. When they really questioned Ruben Schmidt, he made a weird claim. He told police that he had experienced blackouts throughout the course of his life, and the night after the fair, he just woke up at his grandma's house with no recollection of speaking to Misty. I have had a lot of thoughts about this case, but this statement from him just boggles my mind. It sounds like someone who has a lot to hide would say to try and cover their ass. It's just such a weird thing to say. What do you mean you have blackouts? Was there any history of head trauma or an accident of some kind that would cause this? Did he have an undiagnosed or diagnosed mental illness that he didn't share with police? Things like this are why I have been so bothered by this case. Ruben Schmidt made this weird claim with absolutely no medical merit, and what did the police do? Give him a polygraph test as well. The test was inconclusive, and that was essentially the end of their investigation into Ruben Schmidt. For the time being. More on that later. 
The police didn't revisit this case again until December 1992, three months later. I really don't know why the hell such a fresh case was closed right away, but either way, police finally admitted that they suspected foul play. What's even worse is that the friend Misty attended the fair with, Trina Bavard, and Ruben Schmidt weren't even brought in for questioning until five months after Misty's disappearance. Everything about the initial timeline of this missing person's case is just wrong. It seems quite obvious to me that these two knew more. So why weren't they immediately questioned? Were they even looked at at all? I thought that it was just kind of normal protocol to interview people of interest, especially if they had spoken to Misty on the night of her disappearance, or in Trina's case, been with her. Misty's mother was distressed. In 1993, she went on Como's Northwest afternoon show with an audience present. A woman named Tammy called into the show and told Misty's mother that she had seen Misty walking towards the I-5 highway on the night of her disappearance, but she hung up before anyone could get her information. I want to read y'all this quote directly from Tammy's call to Como's Northwest afternoon show. Quote, she just looked totally distressed you know, like she was in trouble. She looked like she was crying. We didn't go up to her and talk to her or nothing, but maybe we should have now, end quote. You think? If you see a young girl walking by herself on the highway at night, I feel like any logical human would pull over and ask if she's okay, or call the cops, or just do something. After what seems like ages of silence, a private search party was conducted on February 7th, 1993, to look for any traces of Misty. And guess what? They found some of Misty's personal belongings during this private search party in a ditch off of the SR-410 highway in Unumclaw, Washington. I don't know if police ever even previously conducted a formal search like this, potentially tracing her steps from the fair. They considered this case closed almost immediately, despite not finding a trace of her at all. So who even knows how well the police initially searched for her? Anyway, the items that they found were her underwear, a pair of jeans, shoes, and one sock. These were some of the clothes that she was wearing on the night of her disappearance, but years later, in 2009, the jeans came back as not a match for both Misty or her mother's DNA. However, when initially found in 1993, her mother was sure that these were the jeans Misty wore that night. The items were covered in mud when discovered and rolled up in a ditch, according to the Charlie Project. It appeared that the articles of clothing had been outside for quite a while, and there was no blood or semen found on any of them. I'm sure that this must have been a huge blow for Misty's mom, who just wanted her daughter home. To get your hopes up after finding these personal belongings, just to have it go down a dead-end road, I can't even begin to imagine how horribly frustrating that must have been for her loved ones. But not long after, on February 20th, 1993, more of Misty's personal items were found, just a half mile from where her clothes were located less than two weeks prior. This time, it was her toothbrush and a hairpick. I thought that this was quite strange when I first read about this discovery because she was at the fair the night of her disappearance. Why would she have been carrying around a toothbrush if she hadn't expected to stay overnight somewhere? The hairpick, I feel like that's an item that many women would carry around to just quickly fix up their hair in the bathroom or something, but a toothbrush, that feels different. It feels like an item you'd bring if you planned to sleep anywhere other than your home. 
Apparently, it was an item she carried in her purse regularly, though, and there weren't many other questions asked about it that I could find. Although these seem like big clues and a big discovery, unfortunately, these items were the last traces to ever be found of Misty. This case sits weird in my stomach. There are a few moving suspects that I don't feel were ever questioned or looked at enough. I don't know what the police did, I'm not in their offices, but immediately considering Misty to be a runaway is a huge automatic red flag. Things did circle back to Reuben Schmidt at a point. I couldn't find exactly when this happened, but witnesses, not sure what witnesses, likely just local chatter, claimed that he admitted to knowing where Misty's body was. That's a huge statement to make, and if it weren't true, a huge lie to tell to the police. But of course, it was looked into, thankfully. The witnesses said that Reuben said her body was located six miles from where her clothes were found, and then he actually admitted to making that statement. Which is super incriminating, it looks really, really bad, and I'm surprised he wasn't arrested right away. He told police that yes, he said what he said, but it was a lie, and he told the lie to quote, get people off his back, according to the Charlie Project. It's just fucking weird. If you know you're a prime suspect, one of the only people of interest in the disappearance of a 14-year-old girl, why the hell would you make up statements like that? Don't you think that you might get in trouble? Police gave him a second polygraph test, which I still think is BS. He passed it, and he was never arrested for any of that. But he didn't just get off on the fly. Law enforcement continued to keep an eye on him, and he actually built up a pretty scary rap sheet over the course of the next few years. In 1996, he was accused of rape by one of Misty's friends, and then in 2000 he committed theft and was convicted. And then in 2006, his wife actually got a restraining order against him because he threatened to burn down their home and kill her. Very normal. I don't understand why police never took the suspect more seriously, but he was never formally charged with anything in relation to the disappearance of Misty. So that was another dead end. There really wasn't much more movement in this case as the years went by. No new items were found and no remains were ever discovered, but there was a person of interest that was considered in the case. And I found this quite interesting because this person didn't actually know Misty personally. A local man named Corey Bobber had a particularly discomforting interest in a criminal called the Green River Killer. The Green River Killer was a serial killer who had killed many women and girls in the state of Washington in the 80s. The Green River Killer wasn't convicted of his crimes until 2003, and his real name is Gary Leon Ridgway. So Corey Bobber had no relationship with the serial killer. He just was intrigued by the case and I guess knew a lot of information about it. He thought that maybe the Green River Killer was involved in Misty's disappearance, and I actually don't think that this is the most far-fetched idea. There were two teens who had been murdered, Kimberly Delange and Anna Chibetnoy, who were connected to the Green River Killer, and they were both found at the Poyalup shopping center just 100 feet apart. If you remember, Misty attended the Poyalup fair the night of her disappearance. I feel like that's a pretty random town, and Cory Bobber, I guess, had also put together a mathematical timeline of his killings. He places Misty's disappearance right within his proposed timeline. So he puts it on himself to call Diana Smith, Misty's mom, and tell her what he thought. He was kind of just doing his own search, and that's the part that I think is strange because he didn't know Misty. He ended up staying in touch with Diana for years, but then she thought that his behavior was odd and that he may have something to do with whatever happened to Misty, which I also don't think is an off thought. 
Why had he taken such an interest in the disappearance of this 14-year-old girl as well as the Green River Killer? Maybe he idolized him or looked to him for inspiration, but either way, he was questioned and nothing came of it. Corey Bobber had an alibi for the night of her disappearance, and besides a run-in with a drug charge, his record was clean. So that didn't go anywhere. He was no longer seen as a suspect, and this odd part of this case came to a quick end. And honestly, that's really where the entire case kind of comes to an end. There hasn't been anything else found, no other items, nothing. No DNA, no new suspects, it just has kind of run cold. And it's been 28 years since she went missing, so I'm not sure if anything else will ever pop up again in relation to the disappearance of Misty Copsey. It makes me very sad because she was a young girl who loved sports, specifically softball, basketball, and volleyball. She was really well-behaved in school, she didn't do any drugs, she was just on what seemed to be a great path, and we still have no clue what happened to her. The most recent news in this case is from September 2017, when local police decided to try a new tactic to potentially bring in new leads. On September 17th, which marked the 25th anniversary of her disappearance, the Poilup police began tweeting as if they were Misty, asking for help. All of the tweets were in first person, from Misty's perspective. The first tweet read, quote, Hi, my name is Misty Copsey. I am missing and I need your help. Hashtag Misty Copsey, end quote. Tweets continued to come through from the Poilup Police Twitter account, adding in photos of Misty at different ages, and eventually transgressed into tweets about the night of her disappearance. They walked through a full narrative of information that they had, and even tweeted a photo of the fair logo. The police wanted to give this case a real social media push, since her disappearance happened long before the introduction of social media and viral content. The police worked directly with Misty's mother, and I'm not sure if that means that she personally wrote the tweets or just provided them with some of the content and photos to use to craft them. Captain Scott Engel of the Poilup Police stated to K5 News, quote, We're really trying to show who Misty was. She was actually a young, vibrant 14-year-old girl who went to the fair just like so many others back then. But she had an outcome that to this day, we still not have been able to solve what happened to her." End quote, as reported on Bustle. Unfortunately, nothing came of this push, and Misty's disappearance is still unsolved. If you have any information at all about this case, the Poilup police shared this phone number to call. 253-770-3343. Personally, I think that Ruben Schmidt had something to do with this case. He knew her personally, and there are just too many little details that seem to be overlooked. The blackouts that he mentioned he experiences are one of them. Did they do a psych test on him at all or even consider it? Or a neurology test? When police asked him if maybe he had one of these blackouts and hurt Misty, he straight up said he didn't know. My first thought would be to order either a psych or neurology exam to solidify these claims of blacking out and get some more context. The Cory Bobber thing doesn't really strike me as super relevant, and the police seem confident in that as well. I don't know, again, as I always say, I'm not a professional, but everything I've read about Ruben Schmidt rubs me the wrong way. I'd love to know what y'all think about this case if you want to share your thoughts with me on socials. Again, if you have any information about the disappearance of Misty Copsey, please call 253-770-3343. Thank you so much again for checking out Criminal Mind. If this is the first episode you've listened to, there are now seven other episodes you can listen to that we've released so far. I already have all the scripts finished for season two of Criminal Mind, but if you have any ideas for future cases to cover that fit within the realm of the podcast, 
please reach out to me on socials at I am Revive across the board. I am always looking for new cases to research and delve into. Sometimes I just hit a brick wall when looking for cases to cover, so any suggestions are always super helpful. If you like what you're hearing so far on Criminal Mind, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, and share with all of your true crime addicted friends. See you next time. Love, Revive.